Welcome to this bonus episode of Murder Archives. I'm Emma Curtin. This is part two of the bonus episode for Fractured Silence, the death of Norma Rees MacLeod. And we're going to continue looking at some of the theories you've sent in. Again, thanks to everyone who listened and sent in their thoughts and theories. And feel free to keep your feedback and theories coming. You can email me at emma at murderarchives.com.au or leave a message on the Murder Archives Facebook page. And again, as a reminder, if you want to know more about the investigation, with all those details we couldn't cram into the episodes, you can buy the book in paperback or as an e-book from Amazon and other online bookstores. It's called Fractured Silence, The Mysterious Death of Norma Rees MacLeod. In the first part of our bonus episode, we had a quick recap of what we learnt in the podcast. We looked at your theories about the underpants, the idea of incest, Norma's physical and mental health, the land in Heidelberg, as well as thoughts around pregnancy and Norma's sexuality. Now let's talk about the suspects themselves, as well as Asmodeus, and some interesting finds from the Turak Bowls Club. For me, Norma's father, Norman, is still the most likely suspect. A controlling man who was pushed over the edge by the loosening grip he had on his daughter. Did she threaten to leave? Or was it something more sinister? Did she threaten to reveal family secrets of abuse? Some listeners agree with me. Lee from Auckland, for example, reiterated the point about the police apparently not checking Norman's alibi. Had he really gone into the city that day? Josie also thought Norman may not have gone into the city and that his attack on his daughter was premeditated. She believed that Norman had lost his stronghold on his daughter and with his retirement a year earlier, had more time at home to see what was going on in her life. He'd already lost control of his son Reese, who, you remember, had a recent hit-and-run conviction, and Norma had definitely made sound plans for her future and her father may have found out about her land. Going on holiday to Healesville may have cemented the idea that he was losing control. Fiona thought that maybe Norma had confided in Max Dunn that her father was abusive, that there'd been a confrontation two years before, which is why Dunn was ordered to leave the house. When Norman killed his daughter, Dunn may have written the Asmodeus letter to torment Norman and the family. Or, wrote Isabella, maybe Dunn had come back to take Norma away on that fateful day, and a fight broke out with Norman lashing out. James had a similar theory, suggesting that Dunn was visiting Norma, thinking she was alone in the house. Perhaps Norman, who had left for the city, but realised he'd forgotten something, had gone back to the house only to find Norma and Dunn together. Norman may have demanded to know why Dunn was in the house and told him to get out. Dunn took off and Norman confronted his daughter, becoming enraged when she didn't answer his questions. Alternatively, wrote James, perhaps Dunn had bought that land for Norma two years before and now he'd come to see her to ask for his money back. Perhaps he needed cash. 
When Norma refused, Dunn lashed out and was then remorseful, carrying her to the bed before fleeing. Max Dunn continues to fascinate me and I'm still looking for any lead that might help us learn more about him. And thanks to listener Rob, all the way from Switzerland, who suggested I should look into the Athenaeum Club, known for welcoming the art elite. Maybe Dunn was a member. I'm working on that one and I'll let you know if something comes out of it. Many listeners didn't believe Edith could have killed Norma. Some, like Leone, highlighted that Edith was 32 when Norma was born, quite a late age in this time period, perhaps indicating that she'd had trouble conceiving. This might explain why Edith was so attached to her precious daughter and counter the argument that she could have attacked her. And an audiologist defended Edith's choice to walk to the doctor's surgery after finding Norma rather than telephoning, confirming that many people with hearing problems find using the telephone difficult, preferring visual cues instead. Others, like Libby, thought that the focus on Edith was a diversion, to take attention away from the real killer, perhaps her husband or son. I don't consider Edith the likely suspect, but I do believe Edith and Reese knew what had happened to Norma that day, keeping their shared secret for the rest of their lives. Many listeners considered Reese a prime suspect. Libby, for example, questioned whether the underpants were a way of expressing his anger at Norma. Perhaps she thought he'd discovered she was having an affair with an unknown man. Just as I had, Lee asked whether Reese's alibi had been checked and whether he had a punched time card at work. Frustratingly, we can't find any evidence to say that his alibi was checked. In fact, as I've said before, he seemed to be totally overlooked by the police, whether through incompetence, laziness or collusion. Many of you who did suspect Reese raised the issue of incest, largely based on the oddity of Norma and Reese sharing a bedroom in their 20s. Listener Chris wondered whether Reese had tried to seduce Norma on that last day and struck her when she denied him. Then, given the shame that this would have created, Edith and Norman helped cover it up. Like so many of my own theories, while this is conjecture, it's plausible. But we must remember that Reese seemed to prefer being away from the house and his family. Rebecca also wondered whether cousin Edith had more to do with Norma's death than she admitted. Did she know something she was keeping from police? Was she one of the women heard yelling at the Mandible Crescent home on the afternoon of Norma's death, if we're to believe the Asmodeus letter? In reality, we don't know for sure that Edith Williams was ever actually at the golf course, as she said, and the timings she provided to police are certainly questionable. For example, she first said she and Norma agreed to meet at the golf course at 2.30pm. Later, she changed that to 2.45pm. It also seems odd that she said she'd been calling Norma on the phone at 3pm, but no one answered. But surely by this stage someone was already at the McLeod house, neighbour and nurse Miss Gwilliam for one. And a note in the police files indicates that cousin Edith was asked, quote, You remember the detectives taking a statement from you and you would not sign it until advised by your brother Dr Williams? Why? Did this suggest that Cousin Edith was worried about incriminating herself? Or was she simply trying to shelter her Auntie Edith, Norma's mother? Should we add Cousin Edith Williams to our list of suspects?
Before we go into the murder itself, I want to talk about my suggestion made in episode 6 that maybe there was some sort of a cover-up. That somehow Norman and his family were being protected from conviction. You may remember that a member of the public in 1929 suggested to police that Norman had friends in high places, as high up as the Chief Secretary of Victoria, Stanley Argyle. When I recorded the earlier episodes of the podcast, I said I couldn't prove that Norman and Stanley even knew each other. Well, that was soon to change. Listener Zoe had contacts in the Turak Bowls Club and she put me in touch with a committee member, Hugh. Hugh had also listened to the podcast and had started to dig around in the Bowls Club for records. What he found and shared with me were membership records and minutes going back to 1913, when the club first opened. I've now read all of these documents, and here's what I discovered. First, among the 30 or so members of the Bowls Club were Norman MacLeod himself, Patrick Walsh, the police superintendent in charge of Norma's murder investigation, remember we already knew that he was a member of the Bowls Club, Dr Johnston Thwaites was also a member. He was the family doctor who'd been at Norma's bedside. And lo and behold, Stanley Argyle, the Chief Secretary of Victoria, who had supervision of police as part of his portfolio. So Norman must have known Stanley. He probably played bowls with him. Hmm, very interesting. So, can we still say it's a coincidence that the handling of Norma MacLeod's murder case was a bit light on? The other interesting things I learnt from reading the Bowls Club documents seemed to confirm the impression of Norman I'd already developed. A man who never really achieved his aspirations. While an original member of the Bowls Club, Norman never became a senior office bearer. The closest he came was as a member of the House Committee. Over the period 1913 to 1931, Norman was only mentioned in the minutes eight times. And from what I can gather, he was never really taken seriously. For example, in January 1923, the minutes recorded that, quote, Major MacLeod's suggestions were held in abeyance, end quote suggesting he was almost dismissed. In one reference in July 1928, he leads an objection to a suggested rise in fees. This reminded me of an earlier reference in the local newspaper about him objecting to a rise in tram fares. Was Norman worried about money again? And talking of money, in January 1929... This was stated in the Bowls Club minutes, quote, The President undertook to thank Major MacLeod for making good the five pounds taken from the bar, end quote. It also notes that the House Committee were then resigned. What do you make of that? There is no other mention anywhere in the minutes of this five pound incident. What does making good mean to you? Had Norman taken the five pounds in the first place? Or was he making up for a shortfall out of goodwill? You can see the whole paragraph from the minutes on our website and Murder Archive's Facebook group page. I'd love to know your thoughts.
Before we leave the bowls club, one final oddity. Throughout the minutes there are a number of references to letters of condolence being written to members who had suffered the death of a loved one. But no such letter was prepared after Norma's death. In fact, Norma's death isn't mentioned at all. Again, strange, don't you think, given Norman had been a member of the club for 16 years? OK, let's turn to the murder itself. Many people, like listener Anne, found it hard to believe that anyone would have hit Norma that hard unless they wanted to kill her. Would you agree? A number of listeners questioned whether the weapon was actually the cricket bat. And if you remember from episode 2, forensic pathologist Byron Collins stated that while the bat certainly fit the profile of a broad, flat surface, that didn't mean we should rule out other potential objects. Leone wondered whether a frying pan could have been used, given that the family had been cleaning up the dishes after lunch. Laura and James suggested that as Norman was a bowler, maybe the murder weapon was a lawn bowl. If you've never held one, I can tell you that they're very heavy and they also have flat sides. And both Laura and James independently reference the Australian movie Crackerjack, in which actor Mick Malloy polishes his bowls with a pair of underpants. A funny reference, perhaps, but it made them think. Did Norman have an old pair of underpants in his bowls bag for polishing? Here's Byron on the suggested weapons. Yes, look, I think a frying pan could have because in the broad sense of the category of this type of injury, which was a blunt force type injury, with unfortunately, as far as the pathologist is concerned, no external injury on the skin of the scalp because if there'd been perhaps a, uh, an injury on the skin surface, one might have then had more of an ability to specify the type of injury, the type of weapon uh, involved. So all we have to go on is the broad classification of the type of injury, which I said is blunt forcing type, and there was extensive fracturing of the skull. There was no laceration to the scalp, so I think it needs to be a relatively broad object. A cricket bat certainly would fit that um, criterion, and so would a frying pan. I then asked Byron about the possibility of a lawn bowl as a weapon. Before we get into the actual impact that a lawn bowl might have, for me, it would be very difficult to use as a, a weapon, quite cumbersome, to lift that up and raise it above somebody's head. But could it have caused the same extensive injury? Yes, look, if you could get over the difficulty that you're describing, um, and it is really uh, a very sensible comment in relation to how easy it would be to wield a lawn bowl to create the injury, again, in the broad sense, it is a blunt object with no real sharp surface so that uh, it's not going to produce a laceration. So in theory it could cause the skull fracturing and the bruising of the scalp and the brain injury but I think it is considerably well down on the list of contenders for causation. Two listeners, a doctor from New Zealand and an Australian nurse, focused on the issue of whether Norma could have walked or not after such an injury. Their thoughts reiterate the complexity of the issue and the difficulty of being definitive. Sarah, the doctor, confirmed the arguments presented at the time that head injuries resulted in a spectrum of behaviours, so it's difficult to predict. 
However, she did think that Norma may have been able to walk for a short time. Retired neurological nurse Leone, however, argued that based on her experience, Norma would have been rendered unconscious immediately or shortly after the blow, and based on the injury described, it's unlikely she would have regained consciousness. Or, if she did, it's very unlikely that she would have been able to do anything purposeful, such as wetting a compress or moving from one room to another. Listener Anne suggested, as Charlie Bezina had in episode 3, that perhaps Norma had been attacked while sitting on her bed, explaining why she was found there. Others pointed to the likelihood of Norma being moved to the bed and the crime scene having been cleaned up. Another retired nurse, Isabella, argued that normally after a violent head trauma, the victim would vomit, especially if, like Norma, they'd just eaten a cooked lunch. But there was no sign of this. Had Norma been cleaned up? Again, I asked Byron for his thoughts on this. Look, one can't say definitely one way or the other whether she would or would not vomit, but I think uh, even if there were no vomit around, that doesn't preclude um, a severe head injury occurring an hour or so after lunch. I think nausea and vomiting following head injuries While they're well-recognised and relatively common clinical signs and symptoms, they don't necessarily have to occur. And I don't think you could set any firm forensic opinion on whether she had or hadn't vomited. You may remember I mentioned in episode one that the doctors were preparing to do a spinal tap on Norma just before she died, and I wondered why. Sarah, the doctor from New Zealand, provided a possible reason. She explained that the doctors were probably looking to confirm whether Norma had had a subarachnoid haemorrhage, which is a type of stroke caused by bleeding in the brain. This, said Sarah, suggests that the doctors really didn't think trauma was the initial cause. But what about their failure to call an ambulance? Remember in episode one, I thought it was odd that nobody thought to call one, and listeners Stephen and Brandt agreed with me. Others, however, didn't think this was particularly unusual. For example, Anne pointed out that the ambulance service was still fairly small at this time and was operated by civilians, not linked to a hospital. So maybe like the underpants, I'm making too much of a big deal of this. But, and here's some food for thought, in our next case relating to the death of Sarah Ann Robbins, an ambulance was called, and this was more than 20 years before Norma's case. Another focus of listener attention was the Asmodeus letter, with many, like Meldon, believing the writer knew more than he was saying and that he possibly knew the family. As a reminder, here's what Asmodeus had to say. Two or three times every week, for my health's sake, I take a four or five mile walk. Yesterday, Monday afternoon, I walked from Malvern to Toorak Railway Station, thence along Beatty Avenue, and turned north into Mandeville Crescent, looked over the grounds of the convent, then crossed over to the bowling green. While standing alongside of the green, I overheard two women arguing and disputing in a room at the back of the left-hand side of the villa alongside of the bowling green. I took no notice and continued my walk to South Yarra Station. When I saw the Herald this afternoon and saw the account of Miss McLeod's death, I thought this is the house in which I heard the voices. 
I entered Mandible Crescent about 2.30pm and feel certain that no one came out or went in to that house between that and three o'clock. Ask Mrs. McLeod if she saw an old gentleman between half past two and three o'clock yesterday, Monday, walking up towards Malvern Road, and he carried a stick in his hand. Theory. Mrs. McLeod may be quick-tempered, had a quarrel with her daughter in the heat of the moment, struck her on the head with some heavy flat instrument, smoothing iron. Then she then lifted Norma up on the bed and bandaged her head with her brother's underpants. I feel certain that none but Mrs. McLeod entered that villa alongside the bowling green between half past two and three o'clock. I saw no one about during that time. Of course, Miss McLeod may have been troublesome and obstinate. Was she Virgo intacto? The idea that Asmodeus knew more than he was telling was certainly raised by our experts in episode seven, and many of our listeners agreed. James wrote that maybe Asmodeus was someone Norman called upon to throw police off the scent, and he'd kept his wife from police for two weeks so that they could make up the story about her shopping that dreadful afternoon. Rebecca wanted to know if we were sure that Asmodeus was really a man. Well, no, we're not. We've only got the writer's word for it. Andrea Scarf, our graphology expert, didn't rule it out either. She simply noted that if Asmodeus were a woman, she would have an abundance of male attributes. Some listeners, like Mel, suggested we get a second opinion on the handwriting. So far, I haven't been able to find an expert who wants to examine the material, so I'll keep looking. A fingerprint expert, Caroline, contacted me to suggest that fingerprinting might still be done on the Asmodeus letter, as amino acids can remain on paper indefinitely. That's a great idea, but we would need something to compare them to, which is where further handwriting analysis might come in useful. Well, where does all this lead us? Once again, I spoke to Norma's relatives about the listener comments. We started our discussion by focusing on Norma's father, Major Norman MacLeod. Well, the majority of the information we have of him through the police questioning and the inquest is, is lies. So as a basis, it doesn't give you much scope to work with. He's just constantly lied to everybody. He's also pretentious because they lived in Turak, but he owed the grocer money. He had a big mortgage. He, it was all... Facade. Was, yeah. He was mixing with, you know, the right people, obviously, that he thought. The interesting thing to me that his family didn't seem to love or respect him. He was overlooked in his mother's will and he was there was all the photos where he was apart. So he was a person apart. So we don't really know what it was that put him apart, but something to do with this pretentiousness and being what he's not. Well, the self-professed gentleman. He's the only person who referred to himself as a gentleman. He manipulated Edith into marrying him, and that wasn't a really good start to a lifelong marriage, really. Why would Edith agree to that? Why would she do it to Because herself? you kept your word. You, you, you meant what you said. And she was just had, a, obviously, a sensitivity there, or an empathy that he took advantage of. If we believe that it was Norman, and I'm still very much of that mindset, was there something that triggered that that day? I believe golf would have been enough of a trigger. Because she'd only played one game beforehand and possibly he knew nothing about that. So what's his objection to it? That she's probably out socialising where there's young men. It's exposing her to, you know, a man's world and, you know, attention of, of men and probably more so very strong-minded, independent women. People at the bowls club could have made comments, you know, I would never let my daughter go anywhere yeah. near the golf course and he wanted to keep up face. 
Okay, well, let's talk about weapons. Frying pan, what do you think about a frying pan? Well, if it's a, a heavy frying, iron frying pan, you still need... Or even a saucepan, you know, an iron one. It's still heavy to lift. I think it's like the cricket bat, you need the space, I think that... So really it's less than half the height of a cricket bat. I know, and but where are you that you can pick up a frying pan and go dom? I mean, that's well, if you, were, if you were standing doing the dishes, but then that assumes that this was Edith doing it not necessarily no. that could have he yeah. could have come into the kitchen and said you're staying with your mother you're doing your dishes you're not getting changed to go golf call you call yeah, your cousin why up. would you aim for your head you know like why wouldn't you have just pushed her away i think he was literally trying to stop her in that moment because he could not handle yeah. lack of control so what about the idea of the lawn bowls i think it's a, an interesting connection with polishing the bowls and the underpants but Hitting someone on the head with a bowl, it's awkward. And, you know, bowls slip out of your hand. It's not the kind of thing you'd walk around the house doing. As I said, the, the men would take their bowls out and polish them at the club. It's not something you do at home. Or was it that someone went to leave the room and then suddenly thought, this is not good enough, she's got to be stopped and grabbed something from, you know, it's nearby. What, what I can't get back is the spontaneity of it. If you're hitting someone in, I can understand someone pushing someone in anger, saying, get away, go and play golf, and push, bang, you know. But as for sort of coming up behind them, whether they're sitting or standing or anything, by grabbing a weapon which should have been close, which wasn't, and we all got locked into the cricket bat because that was the thing that the police took away, and now we're talking about a frying pan hanging in the kitchen, what sort of... You know, like, is it a deliberate act to go and get something and then think, okay, now I'm going to stop her, wham, without thinking further? I can't put this together. The spontaneity and the deliberate nature of this act and why. Which makes me think that it was something that was already in the hand for another purpose. I don't even... even I think the act of actually picking something up would, would have broken that momentum. Yes, exactly. And the other thing is, if you do something... This is a heavy blow. It cracked the head, you know, it cracked the skull. That takes a lot of force. And so was it, that's what I mean, was it a deliberate intent to kill? Well, was it an intent to stop? Why? I don't think it was premeditated. No, I don't think it was either. Kill comes yeah. from hate. And do we get a feeling of hate in that house? No, hate. I think it would be more of an embarrassment that Norman was embarrassed of his, his lack of control and he'd lost his status. And I think she probably said something very biting and very cutting to prove that and turn around. Do you think she was that sort of person? Well, knowing what Norman probably liked, or he had something in his hand during the conversation and she said, what are you gonna do, hit me with it, you're pathetic, turns around and walks off. His tone, when he's talking towards the police who he dislikes, his tone turns basically to hatred. I think it's there in his tone, he cannot help himself. He's, I think he's very angry when he loses control. So I think it's really interesting, Ben, that you've read all the inquest documents, but that really seems to have cemented your, your belief that Norman was the killer. Would you say that's fair? Yes. It, um, There's always an element of doubt because you weren't there on the spot. No, the only element of doubt is that Reese is unaccountable and you can't rule him out, unfortunately. I don't think his motive is strong enough, but it's, he still has a motive and opportunity, but it's not as strong as Norman's. I think the investigation's been extremely thorough on your part, amazingly so. Mm. And uh, I'm chuffed that the podcast has had such an airing. What we so wanted was at least some resolution for Norma. And 
it is really hard uh, without, you know, the definite facts and the people that maybe could have given us some more insight are no longer here. So it's very easy to slip into supposing and supposition and you have to keep a sort of, well, that's a, I suppose a forensic scientist thing, you know, where you keep a level head and keep the facts as they are. But it's an emotional case and it's a family case for us. And you don't want to think of someone suddenly losing their temper and hitting their daughter or their relation on their head in a fit of a spontaneous anger because they're simply being an independent young person. I can't put together in my head Norman's personality and his relationship in the family except that I see him more of as a patriarch and slightly removed from the emotional side of the family. That's what I've done. I think Reese was a bit of a passenger in it all. Just a young man, tear away. But I think that Norma was a young woman striving to be herself in an age where it wasn't really yet acceptable to do that. And I see Edith as a compassionate and loving woman who was manipulated. This is a fascinating case and whether it's resolved or not, it's thought provoking. Mm. And as, as someone who loves, the, you know, stories, biographies, I really need to know what happens to people towards the end of their lives when they've suffered the trauma of losing a child perhaps or anyone or having some terrible scenario in their lives. Well, it's history, it's family, it's, it's actual. Like members of Norma's family, I still want answers and I'll persist in trying to honour Norma's memory. I'm reminded of the saying, the life of the dead is placed in the memory of the living and at the very least that's what we've done for Norma. As an example of that, one listener, Meldon, wrote, quote, I work in the city. Every time I pass by Turak, I think of Norma and what might have happened. I intend to continue to think of Norma and hope you'll stay with me on this journey. I'm convinced there's more out there yet to find. Keep your theories coming and we'll keep you posted on any updates. Talking of which... Members of Norma's family and I are thinking about developing a theatre forum about Norma's death somewhere in Geelong and or Melbourne later this year. This would be a sort of cross between a play and a panel and would allow the audience to interact with questions and comments, sort of taking the podcast one step further. We'd love to know if you think this would be of interest. Even better, we'd love to know if anybody has any ideas for or contacts in possible venues. Thanks for listening and being part of the investigation. If you haven't yet, please leave a review or even better, tell a friend about the show. You can also share your comments through our Murder Archives Facebook group. And listen out for the next season, Toxic Families, The Death of Sarah Ann Robbins. (laughs) ¶¶